pleasure to introduce these two um, both incredibly impressive women, um, both who have, have uh, extraordinary uh, track records and uh, a number of achievements um, themselves, but have also been associated with the Freud Museum over many years, and uh, we appreciate all that they've done. Lisa was our chair for a long time, and Susie's been a trustee for many years. Um, but tonight, um, um, with the subject of the conversation is going to be um, Lisa's classic work, Freud's Women, which she wrote 20 years ago, was published 20 I years ago. With her co-writer, John Forrester. Um, and it's a, a, a classic, and it's very good to be talking about the book um, at the same time we have a, an exhibition on uh, women analysts, which was uh, brought here from Vienna. The original work was done in Vienna, and we translated and brought it here, here to London. Um, and in conversation with uh, Susie Orbach, again, very well known as a, a writer, a psychoanalyst, and who I believe has recently been given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the British Psychoanalytic Council, a first. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's all pretty impressive. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Um, so, I will leave you two in conversation. Um, and I'm sure we'll be covering a huge amount of, of ground. And thank you for being Freud's women here tonight. And thank all of you. The majority of the audience seem to be also Freud's women rather than <laughs> Freud's men. Um, but thank you so much for coming. And thank you to both of you for uh, agreeing to speak tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you. So we thought we would start, or we would sort of divide up this huge terrain this evening. Um, by my being history, and Susie being slightly more recent history, plus the present, and then we would have a conversation about all this. So I've actually made a few notes. Um, but I want to say one thing, which is that I'm very, very happy to see a few men in the audience just to mark the difference. <laughs> Otherwise, there would be no marker, and we would be in very strange terrain. So, as Carol said, uh, John and I started off uh, started out to write this book, Freud's Women. I think this is a different cover than the one in the bookshop, probably. Uh, back in the early 90s. And um, I think I'm going to try and evoke that time just a little bit, because um, I don't think things have actually changed all that enormously, but a lot of good work has been done in the interim as well on this topic, or many aspects of this topic. When we, when we started in on this study, um, which is a study of Freud and the many women in his life as patients, analysts, and friends. Um, it was a slightly different time because Freud's um, uh, sort of bio biographical work on Freud was being largely told back then as the story of Freud and his male disciples and the wars or the rivalry between them. And since this was a, a time that was also extremely hostile to Freud, particularly in America, um, how his own, the, the image was of a man of overweening ambition, not only a conquistador metaphorically, but a very nasty colonizing one um, who, who uh, did terrible things to other men in the movement, uh, ostracized them, uh, was overly ambitious, got rid of people like Jung and Adler and so on. And th that was the kind of core story. And, and women were not in the picture at all. Where women were in the picture, 
was that in these latter days, the, the second um, second wave of the women's movement, Freud was also partly, not by all, but but in large measure, also under attack. And he was in atta- under attack for some rather strange and, and, and dubious reasons, but also for some good and interesting ones. Um, the, the simplest of these reasons was that he uh, wrote and indeed behaved as a conservative Victorian patriarch who saw woman's primary place as being that of a reproductive servant of the species or an idealized best as a civilizing and nurturing angel. And as he said in a letter to his fiancée, Martha, what he wanted of her was an adorned sweetheart in youth and a beloved wife in maturity. Well, he sort of got that. (laughs) But other things happened as well. Um, The other other aspect of of this um, attack was that Freud, because of his attitude to women, his position as a Victorian patriarch, um, he transformed his own misogyny um, into a model of the universal, into a model of the world. And he was a man for whom women can only be failed men, anatomically deprived, as they are, of the phallus, which predestines men to power and rule. Um, So we can talk about all this later, and I hope Susie will have some things to say about that. But he was also accused for being a theoretician who believed that all women who deviated from the Victorian model of femininity or who strove for equal rights were suitable cases for treatment, a.k.a. hysterics. And that was, that was you know, to, to sum up rather crudely certain positions on the large <coughs> women's attack on Freud. So when John and I started to really dig into the history, we, deve- we tried to develop a, a rather, well, the material led us to develop a rather more balanced picture. And of course, Julius Mitchell's great book on psychoanalysis and feminism had already come out and, and um, things were happening on the continent and Freud was seen differently about women and by women too. But in any case, what, what we were looking at was um, the historical material about the women in his life and his own particular attitudes. Um, so one of the things we found that when Freud was, was analyzing one of his own dreams and the interpretation of dreams, he talked about Ryder Haggard, the very popular Victorian or Edwardian writer who had written this famous book called She. And uh, Freud called it a strange book full of hidden meaning, where the eternal feminine, the immortality of our emotions, and notice the equation between those two, the eternal feminine and the immortality of our emotions, is explored. And where the guide to um, the uh, adventurous road that has scarcely ever been trodden before, leading into an undiscovered region, is woman, is a woman. So she, this novel, becomes for Freud an analogy for his own dream book and his charting of the perilous royal road to the undiscovered region of the unconscious and its ultimate explanations, the science of psychoanalysis. So, I mean, I'd like to say that when he was writing this for the interpretation of dreams, Freud had, of course, already written um, the case histories. And in that book, and indeed in his letters at that time, it's quite clear that he sees women not only metaphorically like the woman and she as the guide to the unconscious and to the emotion, but also that he learned a great deal about um, 
human makeup through his early patients, many of whom were women, and certainly the ones that were written about in the studies on hysteria. So, if you like, very early on in the history of psychoanalysis, women are crucial to the way in which the theory and the understanding of this new kind of modern being, who is, if you like, the being of the Freudian century, the person with an unconscious, the person who's always susceptible to suspicion by herself as well, because we have these nether regions. Um, all of this came, I think, to Freud in part through his study of women, and women were his teachers as he analyzed them. Um, and through the <coughs> listening to these women so intently, something the doctors before him had largely not done, certainly not psychiatric or neurological doctors. Freud elevated women um, and what women thought about sex, about love, about parenting, about children, about babies, um, elevated kitchen gossip, disgust, desire, uh, whatever orientation, polymorphous perversity, to the level of public discourse. It became something through these women, what women thought and had, had to keep hidden before. It became something that could be spoken and talked about by people in the public sphere, in the professions. And I think this is where women play so crucial a role in the actual making of psychoanalysis. On top of that, I think you could say, and I'm, I'm going to stop in a minute, um, that Freud was really, and psychoanalysis was, really became the first equal opportunities employer. So that despite Freud's um, supposed misogyny and his, his perhaps conservatively patriarchal views of women, um, he was open to them becoming part of the profession. And this is at a time when women did not have many professions that they could go into. And indeed, university courses for women didn't necessarily lead to degrees. I mean, they could study, but they couldn't be granted degrees. So um, in 1910, when um, one of the members of this very small Vienna circle, um, Isidore Sager, opposed the admission of women into the grouping, um, Freud declared that he would see it as a serious inconsistency if we were to exclude women on principle. And I think that's important. So despite the fact that you know he wants his wife to stay at home and raise the six children, um, nonetheless, women are there to go into the professions. And I think we've seen through the history of psychoanalysis that women have um, gone to the profession in great numbers. And in fact, I think now, in all the, um, in the certainly in the English-speaking world, and I think in Latin America too, uh, the majority of practitioners in psychoanalytic and psychotherapeutic therapies are women. Um, so, um, I, I'm not going to go into the individual women who, who informed analysis, first of all, who are actually the subject of this exhibition, because that would be too much of a great gob of history, I think. Um, but just to mention their names, and, um, and they are important because as soon as they, become in, they come into the profession, women like Hermina Helmut, who was the first child analyst there, and Freud didn't like to mention her because she was murdered, sadly, by her stepson, um, but had many of the same ideas as Anna did. Um, uh, people like Hermina, Helena Deutsch, um, who was the woman who gave us, certainly in America, um, and was one of the things that 
second wave feminist reaction against the idea of femininity as crucially masochistic uh, in all its phases of development. Uh, but it was also the woman who systematized the teaching of analysis in Vienna. And without her, I don't think Freud would ever have done it because he, he didn't believe in rules. Um, he believed in, in passing on through analysis, the business of analysis, but he was, he was very bad about systematizing anything, um, despite his impatience with, with um, some of his followers, early followers. Uh, Lisa Lome, who is the great uh, German language writer, who is this wonderful femme fatale of Central Europe, um, when she, by the time she arrives in Vienna, has already been certainly um, the, the, the desired mistress of Nietzsche, the mistress of Rilke, and so on, and comes in with a great deal of confidence and her own knowledge of what women are and what they want, and has a very, very close friendship with Freud, has some analysis with him, um, and certainly keeps on correspondence through life, and and is, you know, the, the um, I don't know, well, I'll leave, I'll leave it for you to find out more about her. She, she's rather terrific, and uh, informs his ideas certainly on narcissism, and on female sexuality, as does Marie Bonaparte, uh, the woman who saved the entire family by uh, getting them to move out of Vienna and come to London to this very house. Um, Marie Bonaparte, who is, um, I don't know, royalty, <laughs> is Bonaparte, but is also married to a prince of, of Greece, and who becomes the kind of, um, if you like, the ambassador um, of psychoanalysis to France and ends up being the person who really sets up and consolidates in the first wave of, of itself, the, the movement of psychoanalysis in France. And then, of course, there's Anna Freud, daughter Anna, who becomes the head of the psychoanalytic movement uh, after Freud and, and is his ambassador throughout the latter part of his life, and who is uh, <coughs> the child analyst by excellence, actually develops some of the key ways in which it is still practiced by one sector of the, the uh, child analytic population. Um, and the other side, of course, are the Kleinians, Melanie Klein, who has correspondence with Freud. Of course, they met, but she was not analyzed by him. And because of her battle with Anna, although he thought she, she was a brilliant uh, woman, um, he ended up on his daughter's side, sort of. Not quite clear that he altogether ended up on his daughter's side. Uh, in their differences about analyzing children. So um, I'm going to stop there, and I could go on and on and on, as you can see. I've already talked too much. Um, because I really want to bring Susie into this and, and say, Susie, so what happens with psychoanalysis in the second wave of the women's movement? Because all I've been talking about are, is really the first wave, the early feminists. And these women may not always be self-declared feminists, but either by their links to socialism, and Freud um, was very much a lefty in her um, early days, um, so was the of Deutsch. Um, they were all, in one way or another, that they may not officially belong to the feminist movement, feminists, and many of Freud Freud's, Freud's patients <laughs> were, in one way or another as well. Certainly they were... Uh, women who, who were struggling <coughs> with independence and with the chains that uh, society put on women at the time. But then we get to the second wave of women's movement in America, where Susie comes in. <laughs> 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 
as herself somebody who is involved in that movement. So Susie, tell us what drew you to psychoanalysis to start with, and then what happened. Okay, thank you. Um, I really do recommend Lisa's book, because I've read it several times, every time we have to talk together. I have to reread it, and I'm like, oh my god, there's so much. No, I know, I read them all. But there's so much in it, and it's um, it's very nourishing to, to have the history of, of the period written about so interestingly. So I am part of the second wave of feminism. I'm not in the least bit interested in psychoanalysis. I know it's very bad for women. That is what I know at this point. Um, and... Part of, I don't know how many oldies are here, but part, I see a few of us, but part of what happens as the form of organization for the second wave of feminism in North America, where I happened to be, and in England at the time, was a consciousness raising group in which women sat together and gave voice to their experience. That meant that we had to learn how to listen to each other instead of, and we had to learn how to listen to difference, which was really very, very difficult because women were so um, accustomed to identifying with each other and always finding um, the compassionate response that landed you in exactly the same place. And there was something very good about that, but there was also something problematic about that because it didn't allow for... Um, I suppose what we would now call differentiation. It didn't allow for me and you. It only allowed for us and us. And the reason that, that this consciousness-raising group led me and a few other people to think there's something in the method of listening that psychoanalysis knows about or therapy knows about. And maybe we've got to go and learn all of this stuff. So, I mean, really being crude about it, because that is how it was. And we had a lot, so we had a very, we had a private study group in which we, there'd been, I guess, Jean Strauss, who was an American editor, had put together women, a collection of women analysts on analysis. And it was a fantastically eye-opening collection in which women were considering what they'd learned and how they might actually think about it. So we read that, and then we went and read some of the Freud cases, which were absolutely horrible from our perspective, like Anna O. How could he be saying this and thinking this about what she was doing? Like he got it completely wrong. And then we read some of the women analysts, like Helene Deutsch, who described perfectly the psychology of women, at least in the West, of a certain class background, of a certain sensibility. And we thought, but this ought to be a critique of femininity rather than this should be the thing. Because what she would, she heard what the women were saying about their experience, but a bit like Winnicott, there was no critique of it. It was, this is what needs to be. So a whole group of us second waivers got interested in psychoanalysis and thought this methodology is really interesting. We don't like the interpretations. We don't like the underlying structure of um, the, the tripartite structure. 
but we like the idea that we're not really we don't really know who we are or we we've been socialized in particular ways which are so profound that structures in our mind and in our bodies feel like they're concrete they actually feel like material structures and nobody else deals with that no other discipline, philosophy, sociology, history, they're all very interesting, but they don't deal with the structure in your mind and in yourself. So hence, we all became therapists. Now, there were a whole generation of progressive analysts, particularly in North America, like Karen Horney, who wrote on the psychology of women, whose work had to be rediscovered, even though it wasn't that old. And hers was from a progressive point of view. Hers was... Oh my God! These women, you know, we are oppressed. We are second-class citizens. This is how how we were made into second-class citizens. This is how human agency gets formed in this this way. Clara Thompson. Then there were a generation slightly older. I'm thinking of Ethel Person, um, who I think you know you would have met, and who became a friend of mine. Who um, the next generation up, who were incredibly. Uh, magnetic and thoughtful women who went back to the Freud papers and read them again from a whole different perspective. And they welcomed some of the new voices. They were really, really interested. I'd heard too, I mean, people like Elsa Helen. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember when we opened the Women's Therapy Centre in 1976, which is a couple of years after Juliette Mitchell had published um, Psychoanalysis and Feminism. One of the most wonderful analysts who'd written about women, one of the few in this country, Dinora Pines, phoned up to come and participate, as did Raph, um, Joan Raphael F., who was writing on mothers and babies. So they were not ho- there were women who were not hostile. Most of the establishment was terribly hostile, but there were, there were women who came forward and said, I think what you're on to is really interesting, and actually we don't have any patients, so why don't you send some over to the clinic, because you've all got waiting lists. But... What you're talking about is really interesting. So Sally Berry is here. She was part of the original intake of the Women's Therapy Centre. And um, we developed, I suppose, a, a kind of way of thinking about women, which, which the, well, the question we posed for ourselves was, how is it that we have come to have a subjectivity and a sense of self that allows us to accept a form of inequality inside of ourselves that is very hard to shift. What are the implications of us feeling undeserving, unentitled, at the same time angry about it, or bitter, or sour? Or I mean, we'd all grown up with mothers, for God's sake, who had all had difficulties with their own position because they were, you know, they'd been allowed to do things in the war and then they were sent back home afterwards. And Reactionary Freudian analysis in the United States was used to send, give us back our wives and sweethearts. So, I think what's interesting about the second wave, and it's worth just underlining before you go on, is the fact that you know American analysts in the fifties were of, of far more conservative than Freud. Um, oh, absolutely. A lot, of the, a lot of the men. I mean, the, the people who come up in the feminine mystique um, and who underline um, Betty Friedan's hatred psychoanalysis have little to do with Freud, but have a lot to do with the current wave of psychoanalysts practicing in America, who did want to return women to home and motherhood, and who believed in kind of psychic structures, which are really rather imprisoning as far as I can make out. Not only that, but the government also supported uh, 
Psychiatry then, it's really hard to think of this now. Psychiatry then, you really weren't anybody as a psychiatrist unless you were a psychoanalyst. And psychiatry had a lot of power in North America, not through pharmaceuticals, but through the provision of clinics, which were literally to research And through, through the teaching, because psychoanalysis was part of the psychiatry courses. It was absolutely. So it wasn't on the margins. It was absolutely central. But the kind of psychoanalysis it was, was the kind that would have left any of us fleeing in absolute rage, because they were pre-formulated <coughs> interpretations about our own protest. Our protest or upset or anger was our inability to kind of accept stuff and accept our, our position. And when I moved back to England and went to do seminars at the TAVI or sat in on things, I was always really interested in, from a completely non-Freudian, Kleinian perspective, how the issues were that women couldn't separate and the whole problem was she couldn't separate, she couldn't separate, she couldn't separate without any consideration the reason that maybe women couldn't separate was there was nobody to look after them, that women had to, did all the looking after, and therefore they were quite bereft inside and quite um, lonely inside and quite in need of relationships of interdependency. But dependency was a very bad word when it was applied to women. Men were allowed to be dependent on women, but women were not allowed to be emotionally dependent on each other or on men. They're allowed to be economically. So that's the kind of atmosphere in which my generation began to think about women in a different kind of way. But it was also, I'm surprised to hear you say that, because I'm not sure it's true in North America, North America is full of male analysts, and therefore it held a kind of status. So I think, I think now the figures have changed. Yeah, well, that's really interesting because the... But, you know, I could be wrong because it could have changed back. I haven't looked recently. Um, but I think, yes. I mean, also because psychoanalysis is no longer psychoanalysis of, of the you know, pure Freudian kind. It's psychotherapy, really. And so the, um, well, you could call it psychotherapy, but some of us could say... Of course, analytic psychotherapy. I'm not, I'm not trying to make any kind of gradation. I'm yeah, I mean, I think we should remind ourselves that when people had psychoanalysis with Freud, it might last a few months, right? Whereas people now tend to be in therapy for 100 years, right? Or, Susie, I was trying to make... Yeah, it was no. about America, which is, which is to do with the medical training. In America, in order to be a psychoanalyst, you have to be, first of all, a doctor. That was not true in Britain. And um, so psychotherapy, which didn't mean in America that you have to be a doctor first, inevitably, because of the structures of families, blah, 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 women went into more. And so if you take both of those, the psychotherapists and the technical yeah, psychoanalysts... Yeah, but okay, it's a very minor point, because by the 70s they had contested that, and so the women were allowed... <coughs> psychoanalysis was no longer closed to people who hadn't been to medical training. So... Some of the societies, yeah. In well, all of them? Yeah. In all, well, no, it's, an Ill it's illegal. You cannot exclude. Right. You might select for people who've had medical training, but it was actually, okay. it was, um, but at any rate, it's, so there was a lot of contest within psychoanalytic um, societies, and I, I'm not sure what I was going to say right then, but uh, I, I suppose. There was a period, the, the thing that happens in North America and in Britain is that after the Second World War, 
you've got the democratizing of society, and you get the democratizing of psychoanalysis slowly, slowly, slowly. So you get the idea that instead of the analyst knowing everything, and that's not to say they stopped being authoritarian, but it, there's an implicit notion that there's something to be learned from the patient, not just for writing up, but something about the patient's experience and how it impacts on the analyst or the therapist's experience is going to be of use in the therapy. So the therapy technique changes dramatically from the 60s on. It takes a while. There are a few really interesting papers, some by women analysts, about there's not just a royal road to understanding the person's unconscious through dreams, but there is a royal road through understanding the way that people impact on each other. So you get the beginning of what Freud had discussed very early on, of an analysis of the transference, but also of the, the person doing the therapy's own response to the person that, or people they're working with. So you get suddenly the subjectivity, the person of the therapist, or the analyst, being really, really important. Their view on what's going on to them, what's being affected, not their interpretation only of the person. And that is a really radical shift that is still reverberating, not in the Lacanian school, because they don't relate to it at all, but within both Kleinian and relational and um, neo-Freudian analysis. So, now that's interesting because when you get that shift, at first it looks like the men are doing the shift. But actually, it's not really only the men, because the women have an awful lot to say about how, how they are part of the conversation and how they feel implicated and how they identify and how they, how they feel. So you get a very different feeling, and I, that in a way, is feminism's hidden impact on psychoanalysis is this post-war period. Well, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. So you think there's a kind of unconscious shift Oh, I do. Because of the presence of women into a more sort of object relational. Yes, and completely. From ther certainly, therapy moment. Certainly from the 70s onwards. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So what else did women change? And, and how did it change women? I mean, you know, that, that's the other thing. Because, of course, as you're going through this process, as feminists <laughs> or uh, members of the second wave women's movement, how do the women themselves change? Because it starts off with, with a particular view of Freudian analysis and ends up with other views um, and other forms of actually working with therapy. But the theory also changes. So, Well, I think the theory changes in the crudity changes. Not that I actually do think. I think if you read any of the papers, the original papers, they're not crude. But but I think that the, the theory changes because there is something missing, but what is missing is not the phallus. So how do you explain those missing, empty feelings? What are they about? Are they about what happens in the pre-edible period? Is it what happens in why is the mother-child relationship so problematic in the early lives? What is it that... that um, that we don't support there, we simply idealize. So you get a lot, of, you get a real shift to very, uh, not necessarily talked about in the therapy, but thought about by therapists. Is what is being discussed is a, has its, 
has its origins or precipitates in the early mother-child relationship where the child is not sufficiently seen as other, is perhaps seen as oneself, is projected onto in very complex ways, and gender is a construction at that point of how one sees one's child. So it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I've always thought, I'm just going to be contentious here. You go ahead, you always are. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's fun. <laughs> so I always thought that Melanie Klein's presence in Britain yeah. as a key analyst who influenced a great swathe of uh, the way, of ways in which analysis is practiced and understood um, meant that you moved into the pre-Edipal and yeah. that you were in a you know, really pre-language pre uh, area for great intuitive forces to come into being and, and you know, the mother-child becomes the template of the British analytic couple and uh, sex, Freudian sex, disappears out the window. Now, now you're saying to me that this may also be to do with the fact that there are more women thinking analysis and women don't really want to think about desire or sexuality as much as they perhaps want to think the relationship to with the second way the mother because the mother was very problematic for that I mean I know I was there too for that bit of the women's movement you know I can't give you an honest answer because I was partly in New York and so Melanie Klein was of no significance at that point at all so, so therefore what was being thought about were much more I mean, maybe Beatrice Beebe's early work, I hadn't even really come out then, but it was really, how do we rethink mothering? Because part of what feminism did was to make mothers interesting and to make mothering, mothering interesting. Because having grown up male-identified and the generation before, fem as fem before feminism hit me, you know, women who talked about children were really boring. And then all of a sudden it became really interesting. I'm talking pre-analysis. I'm talking, you know, you wanted to talk with the men. You didn't want to talk with the women who were talking about babies. Now, what feminism did is it made mothers really, really interesting, central, complicated, set, you know, crucial in all of our lives and not easy to repudiate. And that was a very different kind of way both in the women's movement and in psychoanalysis, to think about the impact of a woman struggling to be a woman herself who is at the same time reproducing and managing, which was very different from the Kleinian sort of understanding the intuitive interpretation of going up, you know, in a passage. It was much more... It's very interesting. It's such a different take. And there was so much respect for the fact that the mother who for all of psychoanalysis is the, the failing person, the person who fails the patient, is no longer seen as a fail, but is a complex person in her own right. But not always, because Freud didn't. No. Particularly. Yeah. Okay. His own mother um, and himself relationship might have been tricky, but he never, in his um, analysis, actually or very rarely talks about that. He's much more interested in the father. He is. But I also want to pick up on the other thing about sexuality, because I don't think it was an avoidance of sexuality, actually. 
And I still think this is one of the thorny problems, and I've written about it a lot, and I've talked to you about it a lot, and talked to other people in this room who I recognise a lot. of sex a lot. Correct. So, I still don't understand where female sexuality comes from, because if I think about, if I think about how sexuality is that all the precursors to everything are, you know, babbling is a precursor to language and um, crawling is a precursor to walking. What are the precursors to sex for girls? I, I get it for boys. I don't have any difficulty. They've got a penis. We praise them for peeing properly. They are allowed to handle their penises. There's no problem with saying, oh, gosh, isn't that great, you know. Um, you know, you're doing it well. But we do not do that with our girls. And what is that about? We still don't do that. We don't do it when they're little and they say, great, isn't that lovely Emma found her clitoris? We don't do that. We don't. We really don't do that. And we certainly don't. Yeah, but that may be because girls don't do that. I mean, although, of course, they masturbate like everybody else. But the questions they ask of adults But are the parent not doesn't say, oh. And we don't do it in schools. We still learn how to put on condoms. We still don't learn about girls' sexuality. So the question is, is sexuality something that is not allowed in that very early mother-daughter relationship that therefore makes it very dangerous or very confusing or not integral to, and, and is something that doesn't, that gets to be like a stuck-on. I mean, I was thinking today, this is really a stretch, but you'll forgive me. On Monday, last week, the announcement that the, the, the research paper should, that showed that one in three girls will not have um, a smear test because they feel so bad about their bodies is an absolutely staggering result. Because we're talking about a country in which your GP will text, email you, your school will tell you to do it, your mum will have done it. And we now have such body hatred that the girls are too scared. They don't want to do it, right? And we could link that to Me Too and all of that, but I'm not going to do that now. But I think it's a very staggering and new result. But, but do you think, Susie, that one of the difficulties is that Curious, and I, you know, I, this is a genuine question because I don't know. <laughs> um, do you think that one of the difficulties was that during the second wave of the women's movement, when um, you know the clitoris became incredibly important, and thanks vagina, to Betty Dodson, actually, yeah, and and the vagina was demoted as a centre of. of so-called orgasm, a word, by the way, that Freud only ever uses once. He only ever talks about satisfaction, and is not really interested in that. Anyhow, that's neither here nor there. Um, do you think because of this, this movement in uh, um, localized sexuality, in, and mm -hmm. so the women who grew up with that, what they gave their daughters, away from what I think Freud would have theorized, is that there is a polymorphous sexuality which is to do with, you know, tickling and, and canoodling and, and, you know, whatever it is that, that, that children do just with their, by being, being embodied. Um, and we do, you know, tickle our girls, da, 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 da. but then we don't think of that as, uh, well, first of all, we might think of that as pedophiliac. <laughs> you know, it becomes a site of danger in the female body, very quickly. And uh, secondly, we don't 
then translate that into a sense of what sensuality, sexuality is about, because it's become too localized, too generalized. Sorry, that's, I, that's a I wouldn't, question. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that. Okay, good. I'm just not sure, because I think there's that as one strain going on, Lisa. But the other strain is that every little bit of a woman's body, and it's happening now for men, Every little bit has been eroticized, whether it's a fingernail or... So the wireistic eroticism, that's not tactile eroticism. Exactly. So there is something very complex about the forms of embodiment that are possible. You've written about that brilliantly. About for, for... in the making of girls. It's also true now in the making of boys. We do, we do know this. So it's not, and if you don't have, if you have embodiment art so that you have unstable or shaky bodies or not any kind of certainty, it's quite hard to see how the erotic fits into that, whether you have, you're hyper-erotic or whether you don't have an eroticism that is for you. You can have a lot of sex, but I'm not sure that's to do with erotics. So you're right, it could be over-generalized, over-specified. It, it, basically, we're in a lot of trouble. Now, do we know anything about that as women working on the couch? That's an interesting question, because until Me Too, I would say that in my clinical experience, it's very rare for women to talk about sex. The actual practice of sex, the actual experience of the erotic I mean, they might talk about being really excited because they're getting into a new relationship, or they might say, yeah, well, the sex was really great. But the actual thing about sexuality is not, has not been big in my practice. And I don't think it's necessarily to do with me and my issues. I really don't. Because if I discuss it with my female friends who are colleagues, I think they've had difficulty with that too. So that's a very different thing, because whereas the Freudian century was all supposed to be about sex or its various forms, we have become interested in mothers and mothering and women and subjectivity and masculinity and all of that. And gender. And gender too. But that's not the same as sex or or desire. I think that's right. So, I mean, is there a way in which, which, just as in, in politics gender took over as a category and as a site of, 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 if you like, identity um, from sexuality, the same thing happened, must happen because they're all related, inside the theoretical um, understandings of psychoanalysts. I mean, inside, when I say inside, I mean in the consulting room is what I mean. Yes, except that a lot of us also saw men. (laughs) <laughs> and it was true that although men might have felt some entitlement, they still had the same unentitlements inside. So so we then had to think, wait, wait, wait. So the guys are feeling the same stuff that the women are feeling, except they feel safer in the world, or they don't feel safer, but they feel they have more permission. They have a whole other side of permissions. So what is that about? Well, of course, because you can't do Freud's women without Freud's men. I mean... You can. You've got to have, in the consulting room, you have at least several sexes or genders. Well, of course, no woman is just a woman. Mm. And no therapist is just... I might be a woman therapist, but I, you know, of a certain age, but that's not how I am seen. 
No, and that's not true uh, necessarily within the analysis. No, that's what I mean. I'm, I could be a father, a brother, a, a pesky sister. I could be anything. So that variety, because of the notion of what happens in a therapy encounter, there's a lot of fluidity. I think what the, the, the thing is that the second wave of feminism was we were really quite fundamentalist in our attitudes, which was, this is what it is, this is what we're like, this is how we understand. Now we're so bloody fluid, I'm not sure that we've understood very much more. So let, let's go right into the present then, because then we'll, we'll come to you for questions, which are hopefully many, <laughs> and comments. Comments. <laughs> not too long, but comments on those. Um, what happens with Me Too in the consulting? Mm. Or, or just pre-Me Too. I mean, I don't mean necessarily that it's a wave. What about sexual predation? Does that does that come in there, or is that just taken up until now as a given, and it doesn't affect what goes on as conversation there? It's so incredibly complex what goes on in the consulting room around this, because I think there's one response one week. And then there's different responses. And you can't tell whether the responses of the fear of actually standing up for the position that you're holding or whether it's part of a, of a kind of reactionary fight back. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult. If I say what happens in the insulting room, I, I have a man who would say this one week and then two months later is saying, it's all gone too far, it's this, that, and the other. Right? And it's and when you listen to the arguments about too far, they're really spurious. They're really not at the level of the openness that was in the first understanding. This is a chance for me to engage with this. This is a chance for me to understand who I was as an adolescent boy. This is who I was. You know, this is how I deal with my fears. That I'm I'm not predatory, but I know lots of right. So. So, so it opens something up. It's now scaring people. Okay, I, I want to go go back. One more question before we turn to you. So wait, I haven't asked you any questions. You don't need to ask any questions. I don't have any answers. Comments. <laughs> <laughs> um, women within uh, analysis also come to you through men and their discourse and their conversation self-reflection and so on. And I, I'm really interested to know whether in your experiences of uh, working with men that the idea of mother and woman, desirable woman or not desirable woman, whatever it happens to be, whether that has shifted over these last 30 years. Oh, absolutely. So how? The category of beauty seems to be central to everybody. Really? So it's all voyeuristic now? Yeah. It's the terms in which men are talking and about their, I'm talking about heterosexual men, or actually gay men, but the whole category is, uh, is, is, it's inflected with body and beauty. It's, it's, it, their personalities might be really ever so nice, but now I really like, now I can't leave because she's so beautiful. I really like beautiful women. Good news. No, that's very bad news. No. Well, the good news is that I think that, that, that there's a lot of interest in emotional connection. That is 
that is real. There is definitely that. People and that's a shift. That's a real shift. I don't think people like being stranded in. That's wonderful. In alienated, anemic relationships. I don't think they want that. Okay. Okay. Go on. Go on more. <laughs> What, what, I've got to do the good news now? Wait a minute, I have to well, think about the, the day today. I mean, how, how do men interiorize the fact that they are now these hostile beings once again? I mean, we went through they the ones they, they, with they, rape. And, um, I think that's really interesting because I think they don't all identify with that. And they, a lot of them have daughters and they're very, very concerned about their daughters. And they think about the President's Club and what if my daughter had to do that job? And they don't feel okay about it. These are the ones who are actually talking about it. Um, and they have no idea. I mean, a lot of them have no idea I'm a feminist, so it isn't anything to do with talking to me about it. Um, but it's to do with their regard for their daughters, which is, I think, absolutely fundamentally different than the regard they might have had for the generation, for their wives, even. That's very interesting. So one last one. I'm waiting to see your hands. Uh, one last one. So Freud hated, at first, when he started, being the mother in transference. I mean, he just didn't feel comfortable with it. He didn't know it. In fact, he eventually got to like it, but he started off being very, you know, uh, difficult. Um, do you have a preference for what you are? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I don't think I am the mum. I think I'm pretty kindly. But I'm not sure I'm a mum. Dad? No, I don't, actually I don't think I am. I think at specific times I might be experienced that way, but... I, I, but you don't mind being any of the... I don't the, mind the any of those things if they're useful, but I actually think I'm... I'm more walk, walking alongside somebody. Okay. I think something's really shifted in... The practice of the work. So, so the transference is no longer too. It doesn't mean it isn't there. It doesn't mean there isn't a fantastic amount of need, longing to be understood, wish to be recognised, hope vested in our relationship. But I don't think it's about me as the maternal. I really don't think it is. Interesting. Okay. Good questions to either of us. Although my answers will be short. <laughs> Maybe. <coughs> oh, it's okay. We can wait. We can wait. We'll end up talking more. There's somebody right in the middle there. Yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, it's right by the microphone. There's, there's a microphone somewhere that will come to you. It's there right is. here. It's right here. Sorry, can you put your hand up again so you can be found? And then the next person put their hand up so we know where the mic's going to afterwards. Or maybe there I'm isn't. Sure it's which one, sure. And if it doesn't work, just shout. Yes, not better. Not better. No. Well, okay, I'll try just to speak loud. Um, there was a program on BBC Radio 4 about um, women and about feminism as well. A, a recent program. And we focus a lot about men against women and the role of women, etc. But there, there were many scientific, psychological, and neurological studies about women view other women. And uh, there was a psychologist from Harvard, and she has, she has developed a test that she's taken herself, and it is about the bias towards other women, and she's a feminist. 
and she was shocked to find out herself that um, she is also prejudiced sometimes against women and especially against women in, in power. So there is something like I, I don't know what. I think the fact that this is a new study. Really revolts me. Not your fault. I mean, we have been arguing. We have been talking about this since the 70s about internalized misogyny and how that is part of the structure of the making of the female. And I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too old to be hearing this stuff because I just think, oh, for God's sake! It's not that we had the definitive word on it, but we. This was part of our tragedy. Was that we devalued ourselves and we devalued each other. We loved each other, but we also had a very bittersweet relationship because we had notions of like at the same time. And some of us thought that had to do with being mothered and the problems that 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 meant in terms of internalizing a mother who had a very complex psychology inside of herself. So the fact, I suppose, the fact that it's now showing up in a Harvard study is really great, but kind of we know that, because if you have a patriarchy, you're going to have psychologies that fit that, and part of creating that is to not like yourself. And part of what psychoanalysis contributed a long time ago was Francis Fanon, Franz Fanon's work, The Martinique Analyst, which was all about the internalization of racism <coughs> with black, black skins, white mark. I mean, it's just an incredible piece of work, which was very, very important to feminism in terms of understanding the internalization of self-hatred and the kind of cost to one psychology. But I'm sorry to have an explosive. <laughs> yes, even before that, I mean, Anna Freud talked about the identification with the aggressor. Yeah. And a lot of women, you know, have exactly the same views of other women as men do. It's inevitable because we take in the culture that we live in, and women do that as much as men. It's not. But surprising. we take it in from women too. It's not that we just. That's that. That is the most. That is what psychoanalysis has to contribute. Is that we take it in the making of ourselves, and so the undoing of that is really very, very difficult. And I've said on this platform a hundred times. It isn't that we just learn a new language. You've got to unlearn the language that we grew up with. The kind of grammar of self-hatred is quite profound to give up. And so it's very easy to project it onto other women. And probably I just did it now by saying, oh, for God's sake, there's bloody hard things. You know, really? Doesn't they? I mean, I've just done it. It also comes with the um, hatred of periods and menstruation. I think uh, sort of the language that has been the curse. The curse, and actually, it's, it can be a source of unconscious insights. You know, if one they they use this, they if one was open to the wisdom of the truth. So I, I was just thinking about it's not really formulated, but something about premenstrual uh, syndrome and how much of that is kind of internalized hatred from society against specific periods, or how much is it hormonal? It's very contentious. Well, I think that's right, but that, that's also part of the medicalization of women, which often predates the medicalization of men, so, or, or is more intense in certain ways. I think and that's all the things to do with women's bodies have been medicalized. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's absolutely right, and I'm just thinking, how many of you have daughters, and how many of those daughters, when they came up to menstruation, their, girl, their friends, the daughter's friends, how many of them had period pains and it was, they, they used the word curse and how many actually found it a little bit sometimes uncomfortable and they didn't, they saw it, uh, they were introduced to it as, uh, as this is, a, wow, this means you can reproduce, this is very exciting, it's just very different. 
that's doing the defining. I think this is one of the things that have that has happened and has changed. So certainly between my daughter and myself, which is the relationship of sexuality and reproduction. And it seems to me they've been split apart so that all the things in women's bodies which are related to reproduction are even sort of more deeply annihilated than, than um, the other things. And then suddenly they too become medicalized. I mean, they be, you know, become... Absolutely. Yeah. So, so all those reproductive parts of woman, which Helena Dorch might have talked about, are now um, put to one side. And that's not that one necessarily wants to bring them back in the way that they were, but, but it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon, the split. I've seen a few women, I, I, and this has really disturbed me, and it's a, it kind of relates, it's an extension of what you're talking about, or the horror, the un underbelly, where reproduction is not even considered as, to, and these are, talk, I'm talking about heterosexual women, Reproduction is not, one doesn't bother to do it in the way that the birds and the bees do. That one goes and, and manages um, IVF and manages a, a C-section. And if you look at the C-section rates all over the world, which has huge implications for the postpartum period, um, it's not just the medicalization, it's the total alienation of the body as... as a source of nourishment for the woman herself and her capacity to reproduce. I know, but we can, I mean, this is a change. It's a real that shift. That is a real shift. Come to, yes, over there. Hi. Oh. Thanks ever so much. It's been so interesting to hear you talk. And I miss what you've done back in the middle books, which is great. Um, one of the things that has been an issue with the third, well, we third or we fourth now, I don't know, wave feminism, um, is what actually is a woman. And uh, we're, we're all his, here talking about Freud's women as if we know what we're talking about. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested to know what, what your view is, uh, you know, the current debate around what is a woman. You know, we knew that was going to happen, didn't we? No, we didn't. <laughs> You want me to do this? Yeah, you <laughs> He wants me to be the, the kind of the old patriarch. <laughs> well, I still think women are beings who are um, start off life more or less growing up as women and are different from boys. I mean, I've had children, I've got one of each, and they were different. And it wasn't only that I was, you know, laying stuff on top of them, they were actually different. Um, and I think difference is great. I don't think we should. I don't think all women should be the same. I don't think all beings should be sexually the same. I don't think all men should be the same. And I think difference is good. I mean, I think for me, I mean, when I put on my historian's hat, I think one of the things that's happened, um, and this is too long for tonight, is the growth and growth and growth of identity politics, as if identity were the only way we have of thinking. Um, we can only think in, in, in similarities and collectivities. And I come from a generation, I think. I think it's a generation. Or maybe it's just me. But I think we, we actually like difference. <laughs> and we don't want only you know, similarities and samenesses to be championed. So I'm happy with a very, very large and commodious category of women, um, which allows for all kinds of orientation, look, 
and everything else. And, and I know that this is not the same as men, who are an equally wide uh, category. And maybe I'm just stuck in language. I mean, I grew up with a gendered language, so <laughs> there are... I, I think it's, it is aspects. very difficult for mm. second generation because so much of what we were struggling with is whatever, whatever you want to do, dare to do it, and that can be... That is okay. You, you're a boy who likes needlework, that's really okay. You're a, you're a boy who doesn't want to fight, that's really okay. You're a girl who wants to... Whatever, right? So for us, the ex we extended those categories. Then you've got the commercial pressures that have created a binary that is so intense with Barbie and Ken being not just simply dolls, but people having cosmetic surgery to look like that. And you know, every woman having to wear 17-inch heels or whatever the hell it is and be, have get rid of, you know, bits of their labia in ways that reduce them to girls but make them... So that the binary... And the binaries have then created a sense in which nobody can fit into them. So, of course, you're going to have contest things that are contesting that because the categories aren't large enough. And I think we're in a very difficult position at this moment in history. And we don't have a history of third sex in, in Britain. It's not part of our culture. Other cultures do have third sex. We've had divided sexes. But we, we thought we were opening them up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the noughties. But it hasn't suited everybody. And I think we have to respect people who wish to identify in a different way. We may have personal confusions about why people will then change their physicality, literally, because we might have discomforts about that. I certainly do. But okay, that's that's the way the world is going. We make our bodies these days. I mean, it's all part of... I see it as part of the continuum of making bodies, whether you're a six-year-old looking at cosmetic surgery apps or whether you're a woman or a man who feels uncomfortable and you can reconstruct yourself in terms of of these ways. So I think it's a very, very big topic, but I think we just have to kind of back off and say, okay, what, whatever for the people who are in difficulty. It's a very tricky one because if, if you, you know, I haven't done the history on this, so I'm, I'm talking through the top of my head. I'm blind. I'm, this is, don't, don't take this seriously. <laughs> but, but it does sometimes seem to me um, that our emphasis on comfort and happiness um, within the limits of this medicated body has actually resulted in the location of unhappiness in very odd places. So, you know, um, I was trying to remember about this because I was writing something the other day. You know, how did I feel as a small child, if I could remember, you know, not small, but language child, child with language. How did I feel about being a girl? And I do have a memory of suddenly waking up one day and thinking, I'm so glad I'm a girl. <laughs> now, that means that I must have known what boys were. I mean, there must have been a, an idea of difference. But I don't think that I was ever, there was nothing in my culture which allowed me to think that if I were unhappy, and I was often unhappy, that the cause of that would be that there was material uh, dis. Um, discomfort, um, you know, there's, there was something wrong with my body that was at fault with that. And I think there are 
a few people who do feel this, but I think there are more and more because it's one of the narratives that pervades our culture. And I think it's been long in coming. It's not, it's not recent. It's not recent, but I think, let's go back to psychoanalysis, because actually I think psychoanalysis can help us here. One of the tasks of a child's development is to mourn, is to accept limitations. In fact, that's part of what we have to do in life, is although our culture thinks it can live forever and we can do cryonics and all of that, actually, we do die, and there are limits. And one of the things I like about psychoanalysis is that you can think and dream and imagine in a dialectal relationship to limits. And I remember one of my kids struggling at the age of three or four with the fact that they could only be one gender. Just an ordinary conversation. It was a very, it wasn't, it wasn't a special conversation. And it was very gendered. It was like, I think um, my ex had had, was publishing a book or was writing a book or something like that. And he said, but only mummies write books. And then he said, the next day, he said, well, I want to be, I want to be a boy and a girl. And then a few weeks later, he said, oh, I see, you can only be a boy. And I said, yeah, but you can be a boy who does all the things that what you want. But it, it was a developmental thing. Now, I think that was a very ordinary conversation. It wasn't like, oh, my God, he's into needlework. I need to tell him that fashion designers are men, right, so he doesn't feel crazy. It was just an ordinary conversation about mourning a limitation, which didn't mean that you have to limit who you are internally. I don't know if that... And I think I wouldn't have known that except for psychoanalysis. Well, I think the idea of psychic bisexuality is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's sad that it's gone out of the, the kind of everyday vocabulary that we all have, that we all have, you know, characteristics of all the sexes. I mean, we just do. We have to, because we live in a mental universe most of the time. We also live in bodies, but we also live in a mental yes, universe. Yes, but bodies are, bodies are marked by gender, too, but, but, which is why the whole thing has come up. Okay, more questions? Just there, behind the door. Um... Lisa, right at the beginning you were talking about how Freud, when he's writing about um, Ryder Haggard's sheath, talking about this terrain of the feminine and the eternal feminine. Then Susie, you were talking very much about coming to psychoanalysis through the women's movement and the, the economic and social oppression of women. And I was wondering if you could both perhaps talk a little bit about how important, especially later psychoanalysis being as I've seen it, in terms of understanding that the mother's relationship with her children is a social relationship as well, because so much of the way the idealization of mothers is though it's just atavistic and eternal, and the huge hatreds that can be applied to the mother seem out of proportion. So how are those politics kind of meshed so that we can see the mother can see the relationship with the children as a social one? And then vice versa, that we can get some, I don't know, some breathing space in between that. And how did the Freud's women contribute that to that understanding? I don't think they did. You, you can answer for them, because I think we were the generation that said, this is 
the asocial relationship. That it, the mother introduces the child to the world, and the ways in which she introduces that child to the world are inflected all these ways, and that she is the social mechanism. She's the mechanism for entering. Into, she is the culture. She embodies culture. She is culture. So that was a completely. I think that's absolutely what we thought, and still think. Well, if you're talking about the Freud's women historically, um, because the work with children didn't come until yeah. quite late on in, in um, that early, you know, that first part of psychoanalysis. I, d I don't think there was a great deal of, of worry about the mother as certainly the mother was the first environment that was a given, um, but what that meant for later environments. I don't think, is there anything said or written? I mean, you know, it's, it's Marie Bonaparte's mother died when she was born. In other words, when Marie was, Marie was born. So she's the, the child of a, of a dead mother, if you like. And that certainly manifests itself in everything that she um, writes throughout her life. Um, and very interestingly, too, very, very interestingly. I mean, you know, she's a bit like Edgar Allan Poe. There are lots of tombs around in her imagination. Um, and her, uh, her uh, characterization of herself as a masculine woman is actually also to do with his dead mother. So, I mean, you know, these things are, it's very hard to generalize this because in terms of the, the women um, who came to Freud, and indeed in terms of the early women analysts, they're all quite separate from one another. They don't seem to cohere easily into that kind of, you know, extra bit of theory. And it's not part of the original theory, is it? I mean, you know, the mother and child are the site of first pleasure. Um, the mother's body is incredibly important to Freud. But then afterwards... But I think that's, again, it's a kind of misunderstanding the social relationship, because the mother is the site of discipline, right? She is the person... Well, she becomes the site of disappointment she, into the development of the child. But she's the person who says yes and no all the time. She's the person who, who feeds when she wants to feed the baby, who puts the baby to bed. She's the person who, she is the one who's structuring everything about that baby. And she's doing it with the psychology of a, of a woman. She's introducing her to the ways of being. So absolutely, Monica. I mean, I don't think that, because that wasn't the focus until really very late on in psychoanalysis, no, it's there in germ. I mean, there are bits, but there's not nothing, you know, theorized. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't, and I that's the tragedy that. of misogyny, right? That is the tragedy because mothers inadvertently pass that on to their daughters. I do that to their sons. They do something different to their sons. Of course they do misogyny, but they also do something different because they give them some different form of entitlement, even if they don't mean to. Anything still? I'm afraid so. Okay, men in the room, we haven't heard from you yet. <laughs> Let's hear this entitlement. I don't, you know, I, I, I think, because we think about these things so much, um, and this is the, the great moment of misogyny, I mean, in our culture right now. So we think, but, but I think there's also a lot of male hatred going on, and I think a lot of male self-hatred too. Of 
course there is. So, so it, it's just. But that is a function of patriarchy. Yeah. You, you, of course. You, of course it is. You get fragile masculinity, and you get just like all the other fragilities we've got right at the moment. We've got fragile whiteness, and we've got fragile class identities, and we've got fragile masculinity. But fragility usually gets expressed as aggression, as we know in society. It doesn't get addressed sadly, as fragility. Sadly, sadly, yeah. No man, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to ask if you think, in our quest for equality and in our quest with feminism, we've given up our power as mothers. Our power as mothers. That's you, Sue. Why does that mean? Because <laughs> I don't know. Wait a minute, you're a mother? Uh, that's rubbish. That's not a psycho. I mean, I'm not a mother. No. <laughs> no, I think women have a lot more power, know that they have a lot more power than they used to. In fact, there's a whole phenomenon going on, which is really scary, which is men, this, and this is not an attack on the men because I think it's unconscious, choosing highly educated women to nurture their children and to make sure that they get everything is selected properly. But, you know, the right schools, the right pediatrician, the right this, the right that. The labor of maternality. You know, but you need to have the law degree first to do that and the, and you know the undergraduate degree. You know the, the, the that was a, that happened in the 50s too. Yes, but it's, so it's again it's a, it's the, it's only in a certain social class, but it is happening in a very big way. So does that give importance? Does it give equality? It's something, but it isn't quite the area we were wanting. And until we reorganize labor, look, people who actually have interesting jobs work far too hard, and people who have very poorly paid jobs work too hard because they have to do more than one, two, or three jobs. And we still need to redistribute labor, and yeah. therefore everything that's around child rearing and the way that we understand the reproduction of the species and an emotional engagement and nurture. But, but that's, on a, you know, I'm, an, I'm a 70s idealist, for God's sake. <laughs> but I do, but unlike Susie, I think you don't have to do it all. I, I don't think you can do it all. <laughs> I, I think you can do it all, but not all at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't do it all because, you know, we haven't managed to dismantle the system. And even if we did, we couldn't do it all. It was just too much. Yes. I just had a follow-up psychoanalytic question, which might go to what you were asking. One of my daughters asked me, and also, you know, very seriously, she said, what difference will it make now with psychoanalysis and understanding female psychology especially is if the person who nurtures you as a baby and then brings you into the world and does that early disciplining is your mother, and then the person who introduces you to culture, education, power, uh, working networks, is also your mother. And the reason she asked me that is partly because she's my daughter, but many of her friends have mothers who have, have very influential careers, and that's what they do. So that the person who ushers the, those daughters into the world on both occasions is the mother, and it made me think about where and how that sort of Freudian sort of 
the parents, what's happened with men and with these women who see their avenues, young women who see their avenues into the world is through their mothers on both time at both occasions. But you know, it was ever thus, because most people most people were mother reared. A lot of dads didn't come back from the war. A lot of men weren't active parents. I mean, it, it, you, your daughters are self-consciously seeing something and you're self-consciously doing it. But an awful lot of ushering in of culture, let alone discipline and loving, has always been done by the, by the mother. And it's lovely that men are engaged where they're engaged, but often they haven't been engaged. They've really, we could still do all of those studies that show how, how little time they spend. So I'm not sure what the impact will be, except that perhaps if the mother is happy in her contribution in the world, there won't be the same kind of internalization of resentment and bitterness. Susie, I think we've done quite a lot, and I think I'd like to ask you one last question. Me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can ask me one too. But, um, so my last question, where do you think psychoanalysis should or can go now? in terms of, of um, a profession for women, but also in terms of its theorizing. Where would you like to see it, uh, dare I say, penetrate? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've raised a couple of issues. One is, I don't think we understand the erotic. I really don't think we've understood it at all. We understand the expression of sexuality. Um, so that's one. Where do I think it should go and theorize? Well, I, I think it should be much more publicly engaged. I'm much more interested in what it has to contribute to, to the public sphere and how there's so many ways in which we, we can understand conflict or we can understand why people do things that are not in their best interest. There are ways in which we can contribute to policymakers. Um, so, the, so that's one whole other area. But that means you have to you have to think in applied terms, which most psychoanalysts wouldn't. Well, it's interesting to know that Marie Bonaparte was very influential, apart from being the mistress of a private so and, and so was Anna Freud. For God's sake, so the children's Freud. nurseries were absolutely critical, and the early analysts not were very interested in what. What is the structure of personality that we're creating? I mean, early Reich is absolutely brilliant on on how we become we become perfect people for the system in which we're living. So psychoanalysis has always had an incredibly social aspect to it. Really, really understood very deeply, and I like to see that increase. What What would you like us to be well, doing? Well, I'm with you on the second point. I think it, it's you don't the, care about the sex or the erotic. <laughs> well, I think I, you know. I think we just carry on caring about the sex and the erotic. Okay. But but I you know and I because so much of what goes on in our culture at the moment so deeply influences our psyche. Perhaps, perhaps as much as if, as if we were at war, um, because the technological changes and the 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 kind of um, I don't know the growth of the virtual sphere and the fears that that's brought, etc., et are so great that I think the, the understanding of the public sphere is terribly important. Um, yes, of course, it would be very nice to talk or think more about sex. I'm not sure what sex is anymore, um, but that's only because I'm old. So, no, it's not because <laughs> you're old. It's because none of us know. No, no. 
We might know about a behaviour. That doesn't mean we've understood anything. Yes. I, think I we really have, don't think we have. I think we have to rethink this, this, the natures of satisfaction. Uh, and there are many. There isn't just one. I mean, what, what do we mean by right, satisfaction? Right, but I think what you said... Take it away from happiness. Right. I think that was a really important point you made, which is we have the kind of ideology of happiness, which is absolutely crazy-making, because it's just not possible. And it's so synthetic, because if we can't have all... One of the things you learn through literature and through psychoanalysis is about the shades of feeling and the difference between sorrow and distress and displeasure. I mean, it's a whole huge emotional yes, language. Yes, of the emotions. And that is not sufficiently understood in our society because we really have... Everything's got to be great. And we don't have a notion of of how actually tolerable distress is and how that helps you actually manage things that are also okay. Yes, and, and it's very interesting that all kinds of categories that you know were prevalent in Freud's time in terms of what constituted character have shifted completely. I mean, nobody ever uses the word resignation anymore mm -hmm. as something which might be a good or, or even duty. I mean, ah, what a horrible word. So there's a whole range of human possibility which has actually gone out of, of our, our sense of understanding. Anyhow, that's another conversation. <laughs> Meanwhile, today, now, I'd like to urge you all to go and buy some of our books, which yes. will be signed. <laughs> and I'd like to thank Susie very much. Oh, and I'd like to thank Lisa. Thank you. <laughs>